The Russian-Ukraine conflict continues. The U.S. and its allies are working to restore the Iran nuke deal, while terror attacks are on the rise in Israel. Foreign policy expert Dr. Walid Faris is here with analysis. And how is the conflict in Ukraine and the ongoing pandemic affecting Christians in the land of Christ's birth? President of the Franciscan Foundation for the Holy Land, Father Peter Vasco, joins us with an update. And a special Lenten reflection from our late dear friend, Father Richard John Newhouse. And finally, Jessica Hooten Wilson tells us how the lives of the saints can make us better people. In her new book, The Scandal of Holiness, the world over, begins right now. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. We have an important show for you tonight. If you'd like to comment, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover. Let's get started. As the Russian incursion into Ukraine enters its fifth week, the United States and its European allies continue efforts to revive the Iran nuclear deal. Is now the right time to focus on a deal with a terrorist state like Iran? And what, if anything, would the U.S. gain from it? Here to weigh in on all of that and much more is foreign policy expert and media analyst Dr. Walid Faraz. Walid, thanks for returning. Uh, I want to begin with the Iran nuke deal uh, that the Biden administration and several European allies have been working to resurrect. The talks in Vienna were halted earlier this month following Russia's demands for written guarantees from the U.S. that the sanctions imposed on Moscow over the Ukraine crisis will not harm its economic and technical cooperation with Iran. Why is the Biden administration willing to engage a nuke deal negotiated by Russia? That's the biggest question of this month, uh, my friend. Actually, if we didn't have a precedent under the Obama administration, I would say, well, we'll give it a try and, and see what happens. Unfortunately, in 2015, when uh, the Obama administration signed the original deal, and started to forward billions of dollars to the Iranian regime. What did they do with it? Did they support their people, middle class, reform, make peace with Israel? No, they actually bought weapons, a lot of weapons, a lot of ballistic missiles. And with those missiles, you know, they fired them on Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Kurdistan, most right. recently, and us. So the timing is terrible in the midst of a Ukraine war we would open the valves of money to this regime without that this regime committing to change behavior is a big mistake, in my view. Hmm. Israel and several other Middle Eastern countries have been against this Iran deal from its inception in 2015. Now, during a press conference in Israel on Sunday, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken tried to soothe those Israeli fears and its Gulf state allies ahead of the expected renewal of this Iran nuke deal. Listen. We are both committed, both determined that Iran will never acquire a nuclear weapon. Uh, Russia's aggression against Ukraine is another reminder of why this is so important. An Iran with a nuclear weapon or the capacity to produce one on short notice would become even more aggressive and would believe it could act with a false sense of impunity. 
Uh, since the 2015 agreement, Iran has gone back to enriching uranium, Waleed. Uh, do the Israelis and other Middle Eastern countries have a, a good reason to be concerned about this renewal of the pact? Not just the Israelis, and we know that they have all the reasons, existential reasons, that if mm -hmm. Iran will obtain those uh, nukes, they already have the ICBMs, and the Iranian leadership has said on and on that they want to destroy Israel. So that's not even an issue. But other than Israel, you have the Saudis, the UAE, Bahrain. Now Egypt is coming to this uh, uh, alliance, the Kurds, minorities in the region. So the question really is, Raymond, why at a time where 90 percent of U.S. allies in the region are against that deal, and still the Biden administration wants to sign the deal and send that money to Iran. It's really mind-boggling. Hmm. Reports from Washington suggest, Waleed, that the administration is about to cave to one of Tehran's conditions for returning to the deal, and that's the removal of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps from the State Department list of foreign terrorist organizations. Now, just last week, the IRGC took responsibility for a missile attack near the American consulate in Erbil, Iraq, uh, in Yemen. That they had provided those Houthi rebels with advanced drones to attack civilian targets in Saudi Arabia and the UAE that you mentioned earlier. Why would this administration even consider removing Iran's guard unit from the terrorism list? And what kind of message does that send to Hamas and Hezbollah? Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, in normal negotiations, and I've seen many negotiations during my life, first thing you do is that the other regime, the Iranian regime, or even their uh, revolutionary guard, will commit to something. We'll say, okay, now you are going to really to stop these sanctions. We, in turn, will stop mm -hmm. any action in the region. That didn't even happen. I mean, we are sending yeah. them money while they are still saying and committing that we are firing those uh, ballistic missiles. I mean, in the history of diplomatic relationship, since the Persians and the Greeks, I have not seen anything like that. No, well, and you just mentioned it on Wednesday. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken announced new sanctions against Iran's ballistic missile program in response to that Erbil missile attack earlier this month. When asked if those sanctions would endanger the nuclear talks during Wednesday's press conference, White House Communications Director Kate Bedingfield said this. No, not at all. Uh, in fact, uh, these sanctions are not connected to the Iran deal. They demonstrate, in fact, what we have always said, which is that we will continue to hold Iran accountable for its missile proliferation and support to proxy networks as we work diplomatically to place strict limits on its nuclear program. So that will be true whether we are back in the nuclear deal or not. Waleed, how effective are sanctions when you tighten them here and you drop them over here? I mean, will this do anything to deter Iran's missile ballistic program? You know, those statements seems to me like cartoon. I mean, you want to remove the RCG, the organization, the Pasdaran, from the list of terror, okay? They are the ones who are firing ballistic missiles on our allies and on our right. interests. How can you connect both? I mean, they say they're not connected. They are only connected. I mean, the Iran regime, first of all, should withdraw its militias from Iraq, from Syria, from Lebanon, from Yemen, or at least 
make an announcement that I'm not interested anymore in that behavior, and therefore I am ready to enter an Iran deal. None of it is happening. It's like telling Nazi Germany, okay, we'll sign a deal with you, and the Germans are moving on the ground, you know, uh, occupying France and, mm -hmm. and, and, and the Benelux, etc. There is something utterly wrong. I think the real uh, answer is that there is a lot of pressure by major financial interest here and in Europe on the administration to sign that deal no matter what. Mm. And that's very sad. Hmm. Under the terms of the new nuke deal, the Biden administration is considering allowing Russia to buy Iran's excess enriched uranium, according to U.S. officials. Uh, members of both parties have expressed concern about this. Uh, Se Senator Ben Cardin of Maryland the second most senior Democrat on the Foreign Relations Committee, said Russia's pariah status in the international community, quote, changes the dynamics of the talks. Forty-nine Republican senators, Waleed, claim the deal appears likely to deepen Iran's financial and security relationship with Moscow and Beijing, including through arms sales. Now, will this Iran deal serve to forge a closer relationship among Iran, Russia, and China, Walid? Is that what's going to happen here? It's already happening. It's a game. It's theater. The Iranians are telling the Russians, okay, let us sign, we'll get the cash, and with our cash, we'll buy weapons from you. Same goes for China. I mean, third graders would understand this equation. This is an alliance. This is an axis between China that has signed already an agreement with Iran last year. Russia has the agreement with Iran. So all what the Iranians are doing, they're telling their associates, guys, let me get the money from the United States, and then I'm going to buy my weapons from, from your markets. I mean, is it that difficult to understand? No. No. And what about this report that under this nuke deal, Russia will be building nuclear reactors for Iran to the tune of $10 billion, Walid. So we're sanctioning them while we're giving them a $10 billion gift over here in a deal that Russia negotiated. Look, you don't need experts anymore. You just answered it. Basically, we are putting sanctions on Russia, right? And following the billionaires, getting their yachts and all that stuff. Okay. On the one hand, on the other hand, we are telling the Iranians, yes, you can give $10 billion to the Russians from this specific deal. I mean, this is really stunning. The architects of this deal, especially the American architects of, the, of this deal, uh, have to answer many questions to Congress, I think, now or next year. Yeah. Moving on to the situation in Ukraine earlier this week, Russia military, the Russian military, rather, said it had, quote, drastically reduced its activity near Kiev. However, later in the week, Russia intensified its bombardment of nearby cities and seems to be continuing the attack on Kiev. At this point, how should the U.S. and Europe be engaged with Russia? First of all, what the West needs to do, NATO, that is, in particular, including Washington and Brussels, is to understand what the Russian leadership is doing, not just about Mr. Putin. He's not alone. It's a system. So the priority for the Russian leadership is not in Kiev originally. They have done an offensive around Kiev to use it as a card. That's exactly what they're trying to do in the negotiations. So they encircle Kiev. And every two days, they say, well, we, was, we are withdrawn from this neighborhood, from that village. During the negotiations, where is the real action taking place? In the east, where they are forming those two republics, probably they're going to annexate those republics. In the south, right. they are now in full control of the coast of most of these ports. Hence, it explains why they are making sure 
to take over Mariupol, etc. So the Russians have a plan, and we are looking where the Russians do not have a plan, which is in Western Ukraine at this point in time. So we need to design a strategy that would deter the Russians. Obviously, we don't want war. We don't want to commit our troops. But that's what we need to be doing at this point in time. Hmm. I want to shift to the Middle East. In Israel, at least 11 Israelis have died in three attacks over the past week. Fearing more, the Israeli military is sending 12 additional battalions into the West Bank and two additional battalions to the Gaza Strip. As you know, the peace negotiations with the Palestinians have stalled. They've been stalled for a long time. Do you see any promise of reviving them at this point? Look, I'm going to be honest with our viewers and share with them what I think is the situation. These operations, in my view, in my modest view, are not about the West Bank, are not about the peace process between Israelis and Palestinians, because if that is the case, they could have taken place before, I mean, years and years before. What was happening at the same time, that same week, Raymond, what was happening in Israel? A meeting of the Abraham Accord allies. In the negative, mm. you had Egypt, you had the UAE, Bahrain, uh, Morocco came. We were there as United States. So it looks like to me that the architects of these operations from far away wants to destroy this alliance between Israel and the Arab countries by creating Arab problems inside Israel. I would see it that way. That's what was the case for many, many years before. And I, I think I have a couple of suspects on my mind. Hmm. In an interview with uh, Israeli's communication minister, Yoaz Hendel, uh, he said, the current reality is unacceptable, and what we've done up to now hasn't been enough. Proof of that is that we're in a war. Hendel went on to say that Israel may soon need to launch a military operation similar to, similar to Operation Defensive Shield. That was when I Israeli soldiers entered Palestinian towns, seizing weapons, arresting and killing militants. Uh, that operation lasted for years, became known as the Second Intifada. Do you see something like that happening again, Wally? I hope that those attacks that took place within Israel at that critical time are not going to drag Israel into a war within the West Bank, but should mm -hmm. put Israel and the Arab partners together in a campaign to remove the threat. The threat are Hezbollah, the threat is uh, Hamas, and all these networks that are funded by Iran that, in my view, mm -hmm. are trying to bring Israel to break its relationship with this wonderful alliance, the Abraham Accord. So I think the Israelis in the Abraham Accord Arab partners understand it, and they will act accordingly. Before I let you go, uh, where does the Biden administration stand on those Abrahamic Accords that were forged under the Trump administration? Have they sort of ignored them, not played a role in continuing them? They, they didn't ignore them, but they didn't do more. I mean, the previous administration was responsible for 80 percent of the additions. This administration could have done more. We know that we have good relations with many countries who are waiting for the United States to bring them along with, with Israel. But more important is the pressure we're putting on um, Arab allies of Israel when they are facing off with Iran. Like, we are putting pressure on the UAE and Saudis not to go full-fledged against the Iranian-backed Houthi in Yemen. Why? Is it because of the Iran deal? I think so. We are putting pressure also on the Israelis not to go very strong against the Iranians by telling them, look, we will protect you, but effectively 
we are withdrawing from the Middle East. We are reducing our forces from Iraq. We did from, from Afghanistan. So we need to recalibrate this policy, and hopefully the next Congress will sit down with this administration and try to find alternatives to what we're having right now. Mm -hmm. Waleed Ferris, thank you for being here for your insight. And you can follow Dr. Ferris on Twitter at Waleed Ferris. The COVID pandemic has hit the Holy Land in a particular way, reduced pilgrimages and visitors, has economically injured the dwindling Christian population in the land of Christ's birth, not to mention the disruption of their worship and sacraments. My next guest has served as president of the Franciscan Foundation for the Holy Land for nearly three decades. He joins us tonight from Washington to discuss the challenges of keeping Christian in the Holy Land. Please welcome Father Peter Vasco. Father Pete, uh, tell me how COVID has affected pilgrimages and the Franciscan community, your community there in the Holy Land. Well, it's been basically very disastrous. Uh, and, you know, when we talk about when the season of Lent, well, there's a lot of suffering. As you know, the, mm -hmm. the, uh, all the holy sites basically are supported by pilgrims. Uh, through, right. through their offerings at Mass, their requests for Masses for, for the future to be said. Uh, and that money basically goes to, to support the maintenance of the shrine. It goes to, uh, to pay some of the workers. And, of course, some of the, some of the remains goes to the house where the, where the friars live. And, unfortunately, this, it's been a disaster because of COVID. And uh, people are suffering all over the world. World, but also in Jerusalem. Uh, the problem is, is that if you have a job, for example, uh, in the medical field, you're okay. But the majority of Christians were working in the hospitality field. So when the, the, there is no, when the hospitality, when there's no pilgrims, there's no ho there's no hotels opening, there's no pilgrimages uh -huh. going on, and and it's been it's been disastrous mm. for the people. And what we've been trying to do with our Christians is giving them hope. Uh, in fact, we reduced uh, uh, half of their, their, um, their rent to most of the Christians in the old city because they couldn't afford the rent. I want to share this, Father Peter, in a letter sent to the bishops around the world last week urging support for the traditional Good Friday collection, which goes to the Holy Land. Uh, Cardinal Leonardo Sandri, prefect of the Congregation for the Eastern Churches, said of the families in the Holy Land, these families have suffered beyond measure, more from the lack of work than from the immediate effects of the pandemic itself. What has been the economic I impact like for those living in the Holy Land? Uh, as you said, I know many of them rely on, on tourism, but give people a sense of the, the work of the Franciscan Foundation for the Holy Land. You, you all have apartments and provide work training and education to these Christians to try to keep them there. Yes. Uh, in fact, uh, education is a key part uh, of, 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 the, of, our, of our contribution to the, our help to the Christians, because uh, we're, not, we're no longer accepting or we're not t telling them they have to pay their tuition for their kids. And mm. that is a big, big, uh, a big uh, success story for them. And the problem is, for example, we also are taking care of their, uh, the, the apartments, of new apartments coming up. Uh, the, in the old city itself, uh, we have 330 apartments, and half of those uh, people are not paying any rent. So we're opening our, our, our hearts to them and saying, you know, take one day at a time. So between uh, food, between education, 
uh, we're trying to give them some help and some, some, some um, uh, hope for the future. Yeah. There's a huge project underway to restore uh, the ancient stone floor at the Holy Sepulchre, which we should tell people about, Father. Uh, Father Francesco Patton, uh, of your order, the Custis, is heading up this restoration. Here's what he said about the $11 million project. The cooperation among the three communities is the most important thing. It is a cooperation that uh, uh, shows to the entire world that it is possible among uh, Christians of uh, different uh, churches and communities uh, to have uh, a fraternal relationship. Father, explain what Father Patton is referencing there. There are three religious communities that share custody of the Holy Sepulchre. Explain that. Yes. Uh, there are three communities, the Greek Orthodox community, the Armenian Orthodox community, and the Roman Catholic community, or the, fri or the friars themselves. Uh, this was part of the status quo of 1778 be it with the Ottoman, uh, Ottoman Empire, and it's been that mm -hmm. way ever since. And each of the, of the communities share a part of the church, but they share the common part, which is the tomb of Christ and the, and the place where our Lord was crucified. But each has their mm -hmm. own various altars. For example, uh, from 12 mm -hmm. midnight to 2.30, the Greeks have control of the tomb in Calvary. From 2.30 to 4.30, the Armenian Orthodox have control of the tomb in Calvary for, for masses. And then from 4.30 till 7.30, the, the Franciscans have control of, of, the, of the tomb and Calvary. Mm. Now, now that, when now, was it? Go ahead. No. And so the, the problem was is that everything was falling apart. Uh, if you remember, mm. in, in uh, 2016, they finished the restoration. The University of Athens finished the restorations, uh, strengthening the, 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 the ironworks, uh, cleaning, the, the cleaning the inner part of the tomb, etc. But the last thing they did was they, they had an x-ray to look underneath the tomb. And they found that underneath the tomb, because of the hundreds of thousands and millions of people coming to pray at the tomb, all the, there's just mm. rubble under it, so we had to wow. we had to fix it, and th and the, it came to the uh, we were assigned that that uh, that uh, work uh, to uh, to uh, restore the tomb of Christ and also to re redo the the stone the pavement throughout the whole church. Yeah. Now what they're doing mm. is digging up stones. Most of them were from the 19th century, but there were some very mm -hmm. ancient stones. They're getting the ones that were broken, and they're getting from Hebron, which is south of Bethlehem, uh, they're mm -hmm. bringing these stones in to put in. Uh, they're doing that now because there's not a lot of people, pilgrims, coming at this present time. They can work on mm -hmm. the floor. But when they work on the tomb, it's going to be going through a tunnel underneath the flooring to strengthen wow. the, 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 the tomb itself. Uh, and it's uh, it's a it's a it's a cost by that that cost is about eight million dollars, six to eight wow. million dollars. So with the with the tomb and the and the pavement, it's going to cost eleven million dollars. Yeah. How long will this take? And will the will the Holy Sepulchre be open during these renovations? During the renovations, it will be open, but uh, it's going to take two years uh, before its completion. The Franciscan Foundation, I I was happy to I'm happy to say. Uh, has found uh, uh, 
a good amount, substantial amount of money uh, to pay for that uh, through our friends all over the United States, our supporters for the Franciscan Foundation. But there's still more to uh, more more expenses that to finish up that 11 million. There have been terrorist attacks this week in Israel, Father. We mentioned them earlier. How do those attacks affect? the Christian communities and your community? Well, most of them are basically uh, Muslims who attack Israelis, who kill Israelis, and that, that has been the, the thing. Uh, I mean, it's sad that and anybody, nobody should, should be dying or being killed, etc. but this is an ongoing uh, cycle of violence that you know, uh, Raymond, uh, very well in this country. Uh, it, there's a, it goes up and down. People, first it's the Israelis against the Palestinians, then it's the Palestinians against the Israelis. But thank God that the Christians are out of this. They're not involved with any of this. Father, the Christian community, we, I mean, we've been covering this for 25 years now. It has shrunken to such tiny numbers uh, today. How wide is the Christian community at this point, the native Christian community in Israel and the surrounding areas? Well, it's because of political and economic situations. Uh, politically, mm -hmm. you have the, the wall. A lot of these Christians were working, for example, in Tel Aviv, Haifa, uh, and with the wall that was put up way back when, uh, they lost their jobs, okay? The other thing mm -hmm. is, is that most, most uh, Israeli soldiers look at Christians as first as Palestinians, and hence, perhaps the enemy, and they're they're they're, they're very suspicious of them. Whereas the 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 um, the Muslims, uh, the they look at the Christians as pro-West and traitors to the Islamic cause, and therefore mm -hmm. the, the the Christians are caught in the middle, uh, which is very 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 sad and and detrimental to them. Uh, economically speaking. Uh, we give five to six billion dollars a year to Israel, foreign aid, which is great. Israel's an ally of the United States. Uh, but none of right. that money ever trickles down to the Christians. It either goes to the Israelis yeah. or it goes to the Muslims, the Palestinian Authority. Now, as you yeah. know, President Trump stopped that, that, that uh, support for the Palestinian Authority. And President Biden, about, what, three weeks ago, uh, said that he was going to give $115 million to the Palestinian Authority. Well, why isn't any of that money that he gives to the Palestinian Authority go to the Christians? They're Palestinians. We get nothing. So we have no world organization helping us. We have no governments helping us. And they're the ones who are leaving because of this. But the secret of keeping our Christians there has been higher education. And we have given mm. over 600 student, Christian students, a free college education. And 95% of these young people secure jobs. They are, they are doctors, uh, pharmacists, engineers, mm -hmm. accountants, architects, business people. They had nothing. And so we are giving hope through higher education to keeping our young Christians there. And they're staying, Raymond, they're staying. So we're very pleased yeah, with that. Well, this is... It's so critical. People don't understand that. I'm so glad you mentioned it. USAID, the UN uh, funds, none of this aid 
goes to these Christian communities. They are all alone. And it really is up to organizations like yours, the Franciscan Foundation for the Holy Land, and, and others that sustain these communities. They have no voice and really no way to help themselves and no access to this, uh, you know, international aid. So thank you for what you do. And I, in full disclosure, I've been a member of your board for a long time. And, and we, uh, we, and proud we to, appreciate, to be a we, member. We appreciate your participation and your commitment to the Holy Land. We really do. Thank you so much, Raymond. Father Peter Vasco and the work of the Franciscan Foundation for the Holy Land can be found at ffhl.org. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Raymond. God bless. And I want to remind you of a special event I'll be speaking at this weekend, the Cincinnati Men's Conference. That'll be on Saturday, April 2nd in Cincinnati, Ohio, at the University of Cincinnati. This is going to be something special. I'll be one of the headline speakers, joined by actor Jim Caviezel and other special guests. This conference is for all men, regardless of your faith. It'll be a spiritually uplifting day, a lot of fun. Bring your friends and your sons. For tickets and more information, visit CincinnatiMensConference.com. See you there. As we continue to celebrate 25 years of the world over, I promise to share with you some classic interviews that may have fallen through the cracks over the years. Now, tonight, I have a classic interview that's been lost since it first aired. My producer, Chris, found it deep in the archives. It is with our dear friend and beloved guest of the program, the late Father Richard John Newhouse. Since we're in Lent, the subject matter could not be more appropriate. Back in 2000, Father had just published his important book, I think one of his best, Death on a Friday Afternoon, Reflections on the Last Words of Jesus from the Cross. In it, he explores some of the most difficult questions surrounding Christian belief and the hope found beyond suffering. His reflections are as relevant today as they were when this first aired. This is an interview with the great Father Richard John Newhouse. Father, I want to talk to you today about death on a Friday afternoon. Mm -hmm. This is a peculiar project for Father Richard John Newhouse. You, you are normally writing theological books, books uh, looking at sociology or religion in general or the progress of the church, right. ecumenism. A devotional. Why a devotional now? Well, it's, it's a devotional theological book. The word theological might scare some people away, but it's an intellectually uh, intense and, I hope, engaging reflection, meditation, um, which um, came out of a couple of things, uh, Ray. For years and years, of course, I've been preaching on Good Fridays and sometimes the Treori, the three-hour uh, service on the seven last words. And, um, and I, that is what the book focuses on. The yes, seven on the last seven last words, words of, of Jesus from the cross. And uh, I did this uh, a few years ago for uh, uh, Monsignor Michael Wren at St. John the Evangelist Parish here in Manhattan. And a number of people afterwards were very uh, kind and, and said, you know, that really should be written up and so mm -hmm. forth and so on. And so I was influenced by that. And then I'd have to say I was influenced also um, in ways that I still struggle to fully understand by the fact that I almost died in uh, 1993. Mm. In fact, the doctors at one point thought I was dead uh, huh. during a cancer uh, crisis. And I've, oh, yeah, and I've written about this in, a, um, in another book that's coming out called The Eternal Pity from huh. Notre Dame Press. Uh, which is an anthology, really, of readings on death and dying, mm -hmm. <laughs> including an account of my own experience with mm. cancer and with what's 
called often a near-death experience. I call it a near-life experience. <laughs> but um, and, and so that entered into it. And and um, it's it is true. It is true that uh, most of my writing and goodness knows I've written too many books and hundreds and hundreds of articles beyond numbering. Um, that most of it has been a, a more straight theological, philosophical, okay. ethical, public policy oriented. Mm -hmm. That, uh, uh, but this is a genre. This is a, uh, a type of writing that uh, I want to do more of because, quite frankly, uh, yeah, how was for my the own experience for my own spiritual good as well? Tell me what the experience was like because I know when you're writing. I mean, you're writing the sort of thing that I find myself writing, and you're piled down with research, and you have to call people and confirm facts. Yeah. In this, in this case, you, you are still citing, and we should mention, you cite hymns, you cite wonderful poets, uh, T.S. Eliot, playwrights, uh, to attempt to grasp and to, to uh, explain these inexplicable mysteries of, uh, of, of Christ and of his dying. In what way was this easier than writing uh, oh, no, journalism, this, this if you will? Oh, no, this is much, much harder. This is much, really? much harder. Really? Oh, yes, yes. In which way? Um, well, it's, it's, um, it's much slower because um, you're dealing with uh, the word and the words of God uh, and trying to unfold, to unpack, if you will, to let let that word unfold itself. And this requires a great deal of prayer. And you have to, you have to be, it's a very solitary exercise, uh, quite frankly. It's um, an effort to let yourself be drawn into the events, in this case, the event of the crucifixion of Christ mm -hmm. and uh, death on a Friday afternoon. Uh, and you have to be drawn into it um, all the way, sometimes to a painful extent, uh, before you can presume to come from that experience to draw things out of it for others. Mm -hmm. um, and, and quite frankly, it's a pastoral and a priestly and a spiritual mission upon which uh, a great deal more depends uh, in terms of the consequences for people's lives here and, dare I say, eternally, <laughs> than whether or not they agree with me on books I write about uh, the meaning of the uh, religion clause in the First Amendment, <laughs> okay, or uh, school choice. Or so this is a very personal book. Very, very personal very priestly, I hope very pastoral, mm -hmm. um, and um, it, certainly it changed me in the writing of it mm -hmm. uh, in ways that I don't fully understand, mm -hmm. but we're all on the way. Uh, and I uh, hope and rather expect that uh, for at least some readers uh, it, it will be life-transforming, life-changing. Who do you intend to read this book? Who is your audience, ideally? Um, thoughtful Christians. I mean, it's not, it's not an easy uplift book. Uh, you know, but I must a, say, a, a it, we should also say, before people get too scared away, in the reading I've done of it, it is very accessible, but it is a 
thought-provoking and probing book, but I don't think it's uh, foreign or, or so lofty that people will, will you know, oh, no, no, should no, be scared no, of no, it. No, 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 I, 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 one doesn't have to have a PhD to, mm -hmm. to understand mm -hmm. this argument. I, I think any thoughtful Christian who's prepared to take the time and to think mm -hmm. prayerfully, mm -hmm. I mean, and, and to read something uh, not just to get through the book, all right, right. say, oh, well, I read that book, but to let yourself be drawn into to a way of thinking. I'll tell you, um, I don't think most Christians, when you get right down to it, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, whatever, liberal, conservative, you name it, have a very clear understanding of why the crucifixion was necessary. Um, I mean, we have the formulas that we use: Jesus died for our sins, right. you know, right. or, or and. But, but it's still why the was it necessary? Why couldn't God have forgiven sins without the horror of the death of God become a human being in Jesus Christ? I mean, if, why couldn't God have simply rewritten uh, in our favor the account of our lives in a way that would not have required the death of Christ? A, uh, I, I cite a, um, an old man who lived next to the uh, parish where I am, and one morning uh, some years ago, a few years ago, he he came out and caught me in the morning, and he says, Father, I want to tell you something. <laughs> and I said, yeah, what's that? And he says, you know, I can, I can never be a Christian. And I said, well, why, why, why is that? He said, I can never believe in a God who killed his son. I'd never believe in a human being, and I could certainly never love a human father who killed his son. Why do you people ask me to believe and even to love a God who killed his son? I was very taken aback by that. It was a very, very straightforward uh, objection. I mean, there's something uh, truly scandalous. That is, there's something fundamentally skewed and wrong with what was happening there on the cross. And we have to say, this should not be happening. This is wrong. And it is wrong, but it is precisely through the wrongness of it that a new rightness is established. You say that the, the sacrifice is central to the biblical story. There can be no doubt. And perhaps yeah. we prefer to, as you said earlier, rush on to, to Easter. Rush on to or Easter, sure. stay in Palm Sunday. But the fact remains, yeah. many live on Calvary. We all live on Calvary in a very, very deep sense. That is to say, uh, in the sense that we are all to share mm -hmm. in the redemptive sufferings of Christ, as St. Paul says, but that we're all part of a creation that is still suffering. Again, Romans chapter 8, that, you know, the whole creation is in labor, uh, mm -hmm. yearning for what it is to be. And, and so the notes of Christian joy and resurrection victory, mm -hmm. okay, uh, must never drown out the reality of the cross. The cross remains the center, always the center. And the Christian joy is there to enable us to bear the cross with 
uh, not only patience and courage, but indeed with joy, knowing that the way of the cross, the way of death is the way of life. Uh, this is the, a deep, deep mystery. I'll tell you, I, I mentioned in the, in the, in the book, uh, Death on a Friday Afternoon, I was on a, a platform um, uh, with some years ago with, I, I won't name him, but a well-known California evangelist who built a huge big church, which we'll call, say, um, New Life Cathedral. Okay. And we were both speaking at this conference. And he said at one point, he's, he's known for his upbeat, uh, positive thinking yes. and putting the uh, happiest spin on everything. <laughs> and he said at one point, he said, when we were building New Life Cathedral, the question arose, should there be a cross in New Life Cathedral? And some of the people said, well, no, because the cross is basically kind of, um, you know, sorrowful. It's a downer, <laughs> you know. And he said, but no, I said, of course there will be a cross. We're a Christian church, and the cross is the chief symbol of Christianity. So there is a cross in New Life Cathedral. But I can tell you, there's nothing downbeat about the cross in New Life <laughs> Cathedral. <laughs> It's a happy cross. It's a smile, have a nice day cross. Uh, no. Rather interesting. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, boy. I think that um, <laughs> there is no such thing as a happy cross. Is no, there? there? No, but there is. Uh, peculiarly enough, there is. Again, as we say in the Easter Vigil, there is the Felix Culpa. There is mm -hmm. the happy fault. Mm -hmm. I mean, you realize what, what an astonishing thing that is. We sing during the Easter yeah. Vigil. Oh, happy fault that earned for us such a great Redeemer. Mm. That we can even look back at the, not only Adam's sin, mm. but the sin of all of humanity multiplied a thousand times over. And but that's only on the back end once we realize what's happened. But when you're in the midst of it. When you're in the midst of it, this is unspeakably horrible. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's uh, unmitigated darkness. It's night without end. Okay? Abandonment, you call Abandonment. it. Abandonment. It's dereliction. It's the, the derelict on the cross, okay? Mm -hmm. The totally abandoned Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and we have to, to remember that this is not a drama being enacted here. This is for Christians. We have a, uh, they say, well, okay, we go through Good Friday. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we know that in a couple of days it's going to be Easter, okay? Mm -hmm. So there's almost a kind of a let pretend, uh, let's pretend character right. to it. But it's not. It cannot be for us just as it was not for Jesus. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when our Lord prays, let this cup pass from me and sweats, uh, sweat like great drops of blood, he's not pretending, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, it's not as though, you know, well, I have to just go through this until we get to, to resurrection. And your book is demanding that people stay in that present moment, in each present moment of the Passion. And not, not simply as a, a Lenten exercise or as a Holy Week devotional mm -hmm. exercise, but to see how our whole lives are uh, only uh, filled with hope and, and promise if we every day, live in the consciousness of everything that seems to be in defiance of hope and of promise. Only if we live in, in a keen awareness of the darkness uh, can we understand uh, the light. Uh, uh, the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead had a marvelous expression. He says, the only simplicity to be trusted is the simplicity on the far side of complexity. And so I paraphrase that that the only hope to be trusted 
is the hope that is on the far side of despair. The only life to be trusted is the life that is on the far side of death, which is to say the life of Christ. Two final questions. The first, why, uh, why did you call it death on a Friday afternoon, and why did you restrict yourself to meditations on the last words of Jesus? Why not expand it a bit more? Well, maybe I'll write another book. Oh, I see. You're, okay, so. you're, you're preparing the way for a sequel then. <laughs> no, you can only do so much in one book. Sure. But uh, no, the title, Death on a Friday Afternoon, uh, gets us back again to the, the specificity, uh -huh. the specificity of the Christian story. Christianity is not a bunch of principles or abstract truths or, or I mean, it involves all that. Mm -hmm. But finally, Christianity is a story about what God did in Jesus Christ, which is the story of the world. If it is, tr uh, if it is a true story, it is, the, it is true for everybody. It is the story of the world. So that to say on a particular Friday afternoon, at a particular place, at a particular mm -hmm. time, see, we have uh, uh, Harold Bloom, the Yale mm -hmm. and NYU mm -hmm. uh, literary uh, critic has written a book on the American religion and he says that um, Americans are basically Gnostics. They think they're Christians. They think they're biblical Christians or Jews, but they really are Gnostics. And what does he mean by that? He, he's on to something. Is that a great deal of Christian piety and thought is Gnostic in the sense that the, the what did the early Gnostics believe? The early Gnostics believed that um, with your raised consciousness Hmm? You were immediately a spark of the divine <laughs> in communion with the divine. You know, God and, and you in <laughs> this uh, uh, elevated sense that rises above the specificity and the nastiness and the complexities of history. <laughs> and so in the Gnostic view, and, and there were early Gnostics in the, in the Christian church who said that Jesus didn't die on the cross, <laughs> that in fact Jesus only left his physical form on the cross and that Jesus was in the heavens observing the foolishness of these people who thought he had died on the cross. Uh, so this Gnostic evasion of the messiness and the reasons for discouragement and despair within actual day-by-day, hour-and-hour lived human existence is what this book tries to counter and it tries to say, no, look, here on this Friday afternoon and we are there. We were there. You know, the old uh, spiritual, were you there when, when they crucified my Lord? We were there when we crucified our Lord. We were there when we cried, crucify him, crucify him. And when we drove the nails and when we put in the spear. Uh, you know, and to understand that what happened then, that story is the story of our own lives. And that death is our own death, now conquered into the life of Christ eternal for him and for us. On this Good Friday, in this Jubilee year 2000, what, how, in what way does this book help the modern-day Catholic reconnect to that central mystery of the faith? I would hope, I would hope that in the same way the Holy Father's pilgrimage to the Holy Land helps us to connect with um, the fact that everything has been faced that needs to be faced 
in order to live confidently and trustingly and lovingly. That in Jesus Christ, in God's revelation in Jesus Christ, the worst that could possibly happen has already happened in the death of Christ when the darkness overcame the light. And so that when Christians say, this is what I, this is not only for this book, but God willing, maybe for my life's ministry, if one could communicate this, and if I could more fully understand it and live it, that when, for example, Julian of Norwich says, all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well, that this is not optimism, this is not sentimentality, this is not some kind of idealistic dream. This is the simplicity that is on the far side of complexity. This is the life that is on the far side of death. But we have to always, and I hope this book helps people to do that, it has helped me to do it somewhat more than I could before, to always hold together simultaneously in one thought, death and life, crucifixion and resurrection. Death on a Friday afternoon, meditations on the last words of Jesus from the cross by the late Father Richard John Newhouse is available at bookstores everywhere and online. I read it every year. It's an incredible uh, read during Lent. And be sure to catch The World Over next week, Thursday, April 7th. We have an incredible show for you, an exclusive interview with Mark Wahlberg and Mel Gibson, stars of the new film Father Stew. That film hits theaters Wednesday April 13th, during Holy Week, I sat down with Mark and Mel at Sony Studios in Los Angeles, and we talked about the film, how it came to be, and the incredible story of Father Stuart Long. Here's a clip of the movie. You know something, Father? There's a sign on the wall in my gym back home. Hope is not a tactic. I took that one to heart. Fought for everything I earned. This ain't no different. I think I know what God's doing here. <laughs> Seeing how I respond, I don't get my way. But I ain't giving up. Not on him or me. I want you to reconsider your rejection. You are a pugilist with a criminal record. Well, look at St. Matthew, St. Augustine, St. Francis. I mean, some of the most remarkable figures in the history of the church are reformed men. Yes, but I think what the church needs now more than ever is to elevate the standard for a priest. Well, what the church needs is somebody who's going to fight for God. That's me. Tune in Thursday, April 7th, for our exclusive interview with Mark Wahlberg and Mel Gibson, the only time they'll be together. Father Stu opens in theaters across the country on Wednesday, April 13th. Continuing our Lenten theme, how can we use our imaginations to become better people? To tell us, I'm joined by resident scholar at the University of Dallas and author of the new book, The Scandal of Holiness, Renewing Your Imagination in the Company of Literary Saints. Jessica Hooten Wilson joins us. Hi, Jess. I, I, I want to begin with your interest in holiness. You say in a recent interview that your interest arose uh, out of a Fulbright Award. Uh, you, you were teaching at a university in Czechoslovakia, and people there recognized you as being from the U.S., but they had no idea you were a Christian, and that bothered you. Why? Yes. So I was in the Czech Republic and they recognized I was American. You know, I wasn't smiling um, or I was smiling too much. I wasn't keeping my stone face the way that a lot of them had kind of been enculturated to do. Um, so they recognized that, but nothing about my life struck them as Christian. 
And when I was teaching, I was teaching at Charles University, and I would teach these religious novels, these novels with these holy characters and holy fools. They were stunned that I could actually believe these things. How can an educated professor want to live like this? You know, what looked foolish in their eyes. And I, I realized that's what I needed to be doing. I needed to look more foolish in my own life, to look more like the characters I was teaching so that I could actually say, yeah, I believe this. This is true. In your introduction, you write about the current culture uh, and the reading of great books. Uh, this is from the, the intro. Somehow, the call to read great books has become a rebellious mantra. Uh, once an innocuous pastime, reading literature in our current culture is a way of protesting. Can you imagine anything more countercultural in this society than to say, no thank you, to Netflix? Every culture has heroes. Every culture chooses whom to remember and to revere. As Christians, we've not lost our capacity to adore heroes, but we are uncomfortable venerating anyone unless it's an NFL player, the latest Christian guru, or a superhero. If the Church decides not to uplift saints, its members will worship the alternative heroes offered by culture. How difficult is it to get people to read, especially young people who are surrounded by so many distractions and gadgets and social media, to say nothing of these uh, secular-generated heroes? Yeah, it's become the norm to say, I want to turn my brain off. I want to shut myself off from mm. the world. And yet what they mean by that is that they're going to turn on their devices. They're going to turn on their screens. So you're actually letting go of parts of yourself to be plugged in, to be slaved away to something that is controlling your imagination, that's making you less active and less contemplative. And the call to be a Christian is to be one who meditates on words, prays words, and hopefully leads you towards, you know, a greater vision beyond yourself, your place in the community, your place among other persons. And a lot of these devices mm -hmm. just feed this idea that what you want matters, who you want, you know, what you want to read uh, doesn't matter as much as what you consume and what you produce. And it really makes you less of a person than, than the scriptures call you to be. Tell me about the writers that attract you. You've written books about Walker Percy, who lived across the lake from me, uh, Flannery O'Connor, Graham Greene, uh, C.S. Lewis. Your book is very ecumenical, but there are an awful lot of Catholic writers. How do their works illustrate holiness for you? Well, the Catholics are in touch with things, you know, the Catholic Church never lost its priority on the things. And then, of course, what those things signify is part and parcel mm -hmm. of the thing itself. And so a lot of Catholic fiction feels very comfortable with the significance within matter in a way that the Protestant mm -hmm. tradition kind of broke away and separated the matter from the spirit in a lot of the ways that they worship and the way that they talk about things. And so you have fiction mm -hmm. that's more didactic, that's more focused on prose or sermons, um, mm -hmm. whereas the Catholic fiction really digs down underneath things and and looks beyond the surface to say, okay, what does it mean? What, why does it matter? Uh, what, you know, the enchanted mm -hmm. worldview that, that was kind of retained by the Catholic Church. You write that C.S. Lewis is the 20th century's primary defender of the imagination. You go on to say uh, that it's important, uh, imagination is important. And while Christians love talking about how to live better, how to help people, how to fight injustice, and so on, we too often do so as an intellectual exercise. We push imagination to the side as fantastical and unnecessary. Fiction offers an escape and has nothing to do with the practice of faith, 
But the imagination has everything to do with our faith. How we imagine our God, our world, and ourselves affects how we live and how we die. Have we lost that Christian, that Catholic imagination? I mean, Tolkien and Lewis were, were, were men of faith who shared a love of literature and fan fantasy. Uh, you know, as someone who teaches at a university, how important is it to have a liberal arts education at a university level that features courses in classical literature, particularly the literature you're writing about? Absolutely. So the liberal arts, I mean, that's the arts of freedom. It's practicing having a free soul. That's what they're supposed to do, is that they train you to desire the things that are in line with who you are. Whereas a lot of what the world does is try to enslave you to things that make you less than what you are. So imagination is key to really change people's desires. Um, William Wordsworth said, what we will love, they will love, and we will teach them how. Education should be all about training the loves to love what is worth loving. In the book, you write about the role of suffering uh, in, in the search for God and how some writers are particularly adept at writing well about suffering. You point to Flannery O'Connor, who suffered with lupus her entire writing career. Uh, she had this to say about suffering in her characters. She wrote, it has always seemed necessary to me to throw the weight of circumstances against the characters I favor. The friends of God suffer. How can literature like this help us not only understand suffering, but see how it draws us to God? Yeah, well, suffering is part of the human condition. It is the state of the fallen world. So we can't you know, control that. We can't get out of all suffering. And the illusion that we can, I think, is problematic because then suffering surprises us when in reality mm -hmm. it's something that should be part of our lives and not something that we flee from. What's the the horror that Flannery O'Connor is always talking about is the fact that God can redeem all suffering, that no suffering is beyond his ability to use it to instrumentalize that suffering mm -hmm. for his good. And that is a scandalous thing to say, but it's absolutely true. The worst of suffering God can use for the greatest of his glory. Hmm. Uh, talk to me about something you touch on in the book, and it's this—you uh, say there are a number of Christians who sort of—they're always looking for the rainbow, you know, over Noah's Ark, and, and they don't want to, you know, experience the precursor or talk about it. Uh, and, you know, I, I call this the fake literature uh, that moves from perfection to perfection, you know, unlike uh, the more gritty uh, realization of, of, of faith lived that Flannery O'Connor or this new Father Stew movie that's coming to theater. Uh, touches on. Uh, what, what do we lose by focusing on the cross without the suffering? The happy oh, cross, exactly as someone right. once said. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, this is this, the whole story of the world. The story that's revealed to us in Scripture is a story that is about fall and redemption. It's about Good Friday and resurrection. And if we just mm. move from resurrection to resurrection to resurrection, I mean, what is being brought back to life? You have to have right. what is dead be brought back to life. You have to see the suffering of the cross. And without that, you have a false conception of the world. And, and also you have a false idea of how to enter into that. I mean, suffering will make you uncomfortable. Death will scare you. But if you believe that on the other side of death is resurrection, then you have nothing to fear in this world. Yeah. What do you hope readers get from your book? Why did you write it? I hope they love more. I, I hope that my book encourages people to see what is worth loving. Uh, it is a very dark world. It's a dark time, and people have definitely suffered a lot in the last couple of years. I hope the book instead turns us to some of these beautiful souls and says, 
the adventure of pursuing holiness is a great call and the call is yours. And if you follow it, the Lord will grace you with a increased capacity to love others. Well, we'll be looking forward to that. Meanwhile, the scandal of holiness, renewing your imagination in the company of literary saints by Jessica Hooten Wilson is available now at bookstores everywhere and online. Jessica, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week for my interview with Mark Wahlberg and Mel Gibson together for the first time. you got to see this. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.